2: This is Greenhorns Radio. I'm coming to you today with another episode. I'm in Berkeley, California, preparing for work on our land access conference symposium in a month, and I'm speaking with Josh, who is also on the West Coast, enjoying this incredible weather. Hi, Josh. Hello. What kind of weather do you have?
3: Oh well, I'm in the office, so I can't actually see the weather, but uh I think it's sunny outside, which is quite nice. We need some dry weather right now.
2: Oh, you guys need dry down here; they're desperate for rain <laughs> yeah
3: we <clears throat> we have gotten enough rain in the last few weeks the last us a little while, and i I really need to get into the fields in order to uh spread some lime and work up some ground and start planting so um i I'm happy to have it continue raining through the spring, but I'd like a little weather window here, so that would be great.
2: Get yourself all sloughed up and ready to go.
3: Yes, yes.
2: Um, would you mind introducing your operation to our, to our listeners? What's going on there with you and, and the way that you manage your life in farming? <laughs>
3: my, my life is not very well managed right now, but uh, I'll describe my operation. So... Um I my my title is um annuals crop manager and I work for a cooperative um which is newly formed called Our Table um and so basically I am uh creating the vegetable production also do some annual herbs and then I'm also involved kind of in, in the overall operations of the cooperative Um, The cooperative is uh, on a 58-acre property just outside of Portland, Oregon, in in a a town called Sherwood. Um, And um, the the project got started about three years ago. I worked as a consultant with it initially and had my own farm, um, which was on leased ground. Um, Very, very small operation, but I was consulting with uh, this project. Um, and then I lost that lease on Sauvignon Island and um, decided to fold my uh, farm operation into uh, our table, which had just started as a cooperative a um, uh, couple weeks uh, prior to a year ago. So we just celebrated our one-year anniversary as a cooperative. Um, so I do uh, CSA. And I do what I think of is probably a fairly unique CSA model. So um, I am packing shares that are for individuals, very very small size shares, um, and that came out of um, working with CSA farms that were packing shares for families, and um, and then also doing half shares sometimes to try and get smaller shares, but always having people wanting a slightly smaller quantity of vegetables. So uh, up to this point, all of the vegetables from uh, my operation for the last five years, including this last year with our table, have been marketed um, through CSA. So people signing up at the beginning of the season for uh, shares and then collecting those shares during the course of the season. Um, And I work with um, three other people for the last year, um, and we all work part-time, just two days a week uh, on a farm doing that, and then we do other things in, in the rest of our time.
2: So there's kind of two questions that are fused together, I think. Um, but the, the loss of the land, the loss of the lease, and then the getting involved in a cooperative. Um, yeah. Maybe a little bit more detail on that, because I think... Um, You know, we're here in this movement, and uh, I've just been seeing a lot of people going through, you know, a kind of traumatic land loss event and then, you know, having a chaos and and reevaluating and then being like, ah, I need to embed in an alternative economic model Mm -hmm. that provides me better security. Um, But I don't want to put that into your mouth, I want to know what your (laughs) – how was that for you?
3: Yeah, I would actually describe it differently for me. Um, and I, uh, I actually am somebody who, um, uh, who thinks that leasing ground is actually a really great thing. Um, and, uh, I, so the, the piece of ground that I had on Savvy Island, it was, it was pretty much a handshake agreement. Um, and, uh, but I went into it fairly carefully. I also didn't have long-term expectations on that piece of property. So I understood that it potentially could go away at any time. And I was on that piece of property for a total of four years. Um, and uh, uh, in the beginning of the fourth year, um, the landowners uh, came to me, and this was not completely unexpected just because of the way things had been going, and said, this this is going to be the last season. We don't see this going further than that. And it was really a matter largely of... Um, when I started on the property, they had recently bought the property. They were not living on the property. And then over time, things changed with how they wanted to. They started living out there, and my operation was um, changing as well. It was getting more intensive and having more people out, and there just were conflicts that were starting to come up. And so um, I had plenty of time to plan and prepare and, and move things, it, it, there is an effort involved in that, um, but the advantage of leasing also is that if if things hadn't worked out for me in the beginning, like if the land hadn't have been the right thing for me to be on, and in a lot of ways it was a challenging piece of ground to, to grow on that I could have gotten up and, and left at any time. Um, and so I did see it really as an opportunity just to um, take a lot of the, the pieces of my operation that I like, um, and to apply them in a new setting, um, and uh, and then to change some of the things that uh, weren't hadn't been working so well. With the new piece of ground, there were of course new challenges, and you know we're continuing to work on improving the ground. And um, but there's also a lot of new opportunities, so I think that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, and then I think was Is there a there... second part of that question?
2: Well, it seems like there's also a kind of a life phase part of this, that, you know, um, at a certain time of your life when you're kind of pre-babies or, or you know, young, <laughs> inexperienced as your own operator, maybe would be another phase of that, that a lower commitment, the situation is really um, the preferable arrangement, but that then as you change in terms of your own experience and your own kind of place in the world and commitment to a region or a family or whatever, that... Uh, what you're looking for out of your land tenure shifts?
3: you know that that could be for me it's not the case i'm i uh am somebody who uh has been farming for uh on other people's farms basically um for over fifteen years now um, and I don't feel the need to start my own operation but that's you know that is partly my choice so um, uh, you know, I have my ideas and I have things that I want to do, but I don't. To me, those aren't tied to owning a piece of ground. Um, so, for some people, I think it probably is the right choice. Um, but I also don't have very much money, and so tying up a lot of capital in the ground itself um, isn't a, isn't really an option for me, or isn't the direction that I really want to go. Um, i 'd rather spend my energy in other places, so it doesn 't mean that it's that it 's the wrong choice for everybody, but I just think that it's, um, that leasing ground isn 't a bad choice um, and it 's one that more people should consider uh, when they 're when they 're starting their operations and and when they 're continuing their operations, I know a lot of farms that are quite big, they maybe own the core piece of ground, but then they expand and they work out into you know larger lease situations uh, so in farms that have been around for 15, 20, 30 years, uh, working on that model also.
2: So I guess this, the kind of second part of that question was around the alternative economic structure of the co-op and, and what the kind of differences are or what one can expect. Um, Greenhorn's in full disclosure just uh, published a book that I think you were interviewed for um, called Cooperative Farming, Greenhorn's Guide to Cooperative Farming. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's available so, for free as a PDF from our website or you can buy it off Etsy. Um uh-huh. but what should people be thinking about if they're if they're kind of ambling around that idea um for their own selves?
3: Well, you know, it's it's a very new model for us too. So, um uh I <clears throat> I got involved in this project about 3 years ago. At that point, um we were not thinking of it as a cooperative, and I came on as a consultant. It's a project that was started by somebody else, um, and uh, I was part of the design team that has, you know, imagined what this project could be. And initially, it was more of an incubator model. Um, so the land was essentially going to be leased to individual operations, and those operations would work together, and there would be shared resources. Um, but it wasn't being thought of in the co-op uh, sense in, in the same way that it is now. Um, and over time, uh, you know, kind of looking at, you know, what the issues were that were coming up in the first years, the, the model that we've landed on and that we are now trying to implement and trying to make work is a multi-stakeholder co-op. Um, so there's <clears throat> there's multiple pieces, and none of them um, one year into the project uh, is fully realized yet, Um, but we are pushing forward trying to make this work. So a piece of that is a member co-op. So CSA members or people who are buying um, produce from the farm or other kinds of products from the farm could become a member of the co-op very much like, uh, you know, an REI. That's probably the best known uh, example around the country um, where they essentially pay a a small membership fee. Um, and then received uh, some small cut in dividends uh, when the uh, farm is profitable at the end of the year. And there's kind of a, a um, incentive for them to uh, be more involved in terms of uh, the, their consumer role, both in, um, you know, possibly uh, directing... Uh, the way that the co-op is going and having some small say in that, but, but also just a, you know from a consumer's perspective because they are ultimately benefiting financially when um, the co-op members themselves shop at the co-op. Um, the other piece uh, well, there's two other pieces. So the uh, second piece is that it's a worker co-op. Um, and so all of us that work on a co-op after a certain period of time are able to buy in and become uh, member owners. And so um, we uh, all sit down together and we set the policies for the farm and we have regular meetings about, um, you know, every little detail of of what's happening um, and decide, you know, who's going to make what decisions and are we going to make um, decisions as a group? Or are we going to pass those off to individual managers or people out in the field? And, you know, everyone from the, the lowest level worker who's a member of the co-op all the way up to the top uh, has say in that. Um, and then the, the uh, last piece is the producer co-op, and here in the Northwest, a uh, uh, popular example is uh, NORPAC, but basically this is... Um, It happened quite a bit in agriculture where a number of different producers get together to all sell underneath the same name, and the producers get together and they kind of set their standards and they um, then market cooperatively. Um, So we're inviting other producers to become members of our co-op as well and sell through the R-Table name and through the marketing channels that we're developing at this point. Uh, but like i said it's it's a very new project and so um you know it's you have to be seen uh whether or not it will work i think that it will i, I you know i'm very confident that uh, it's a good model um but i can't you know from experience say yeah we're doing this and that right um, so we'll have to check back
2: well on that um i'm i'm uh, far be it for me to try and judge I'm just so excited that you're there exploring an edge um, with a different model and with willing parties, and you know, managing the social and human logistics of something new, and and also, you know, you know, you're saying you came in as a consultant, and you know, again, increasingly, so many of us are being called in to be consultants for projects that are backed by people who don't come from agriculture, and the whole story of this co-op or more stories available at Agrarian Trust. Um, we did a profile of the r Table project um, for those who are interested to explore further. But a lot of times, those projects are wanting to go that are kind of non-ag backgrounded backers are wanting to go into kind of educational, non-profit territory, or are wanting to, and then and then there's some who are more trending towards kind of vacation home. And so from my perspective, it's really interesting to see a project that's really working to build um, a vital community entity and a community economic entity um, with that kind of uh, advantage behind it. So yeah. I, I really applaud your effort to, you know, go through all the rigmarole of setting up something new. Um, I think a lot of people are, are watching and, and wanting to learn and, you know, there's only so many educational non incubator farms we can frigging have. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and, you know, we just have to build out the repertoire and the kind of, like, palette of options that people are presented with as they think through, well, what can I do with my, you know, deep interest and love and, and money um, in agriculture? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a different way, you know. When, it, when I started my own operation, Slowhand Farm, um, I um, I kind of went about it a slightly different way, and it um but it had a lot of similar aspects because what I had seen. I mean, one of the things that I was reacting to and that I had seen was um, that. There are a lot of uh young folks myself included you know who don't necessarily come from farming backgrounds but get really interested in uh the way food is produced and kind of, you know how how we can have a positive impact in the world um and we have a lot of our own ideas and we have a lot of <laughs> you know a lot of education maybe not agricultural education but education in other areas um and uh, we're impatient also. Um, and so I spent a bunch of years working on farms where uh, there were apprentice programs and internship programs and that kind of thing, trying to get some of that um, agricultural uh, education um, uh, for folks like that. Um, but people inevitably had some level of frustration most of the time um, in terms of they had their own ideas that they really were anxious to try out and um, and really wanted to be a part of the business decision making um, and you know weren't feeling like they were getting that opportunity through the apprenticeship programs and so when I started Slowhand Farm. I didn't want to have employees, I didn't want to have apprentices, I didn't want to have interns because I wanted to avoid that dynamic. Um, But what I wanted to do was kind of set up space and model um, on a very, very small scale for other people to work alongside me um, who essentially would have their own business um, but that we could work together. Um, in kind of handshake uh, cooperative ways, so not officially a cooperative, but um, but just in, in cooperation, and uh, but have our own independent businesses and feel free to try out things and to bounce ideas off of each other and that kind of thing. So that was the first you know kind of cooperative model that I was working on, and then. Um, the problem with that was that it wasn't allowing as much space for really new uh, people who were very, very new. So that worked well with folks that had maybe five or uh, six years of experience and had you know worked on a couple of other farms and, and uh, were really ready for that opportunity, and those were the people who I started working with um, and had great experiences with them, but, um, but the few times where I considered trying to bring somebody in who was really much newer to the to that model, um, they ultimately balked at it and didn't want to take the level of risk that that involved. And so working in this new cooperative model, I feel like I've also been able to um, take on some of those much newer people and do some of that kind of training and let them in on some, some more of that business decision-making, which is really interesting.
2: yeah it's it's um it's really nice to have you spell it out so clearly and you know to be really upfront about the dynamics that exist as we're learning and then and like these different kind of phases that we go through as as learners as growers uh as colleagues, and try and design the structures to really match and be compatible with uh the humans in the equation,
3: yeah. Yeah, it's a big um, it's a big piece of it.
2: It's a big piece of the work. Um, I don't want to lose the opportunity, since we are limited in our time, to just a little bit check in. Um, part of part of your own holistic planning for your life has been to keep your farming in a balance in terms of what percentage of your time you spend farming and uh, and focusing a lot on Appropriate technologies that would allow you to do to do that, and and that would also give you enough time to work on your appropriate technologies. Um, yeah. and having just had a great, great um, experience farm hack experience in Vermont, um, and really awesome building momentum on that. I just kind of want to check in what's going on with you and your tools. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so uh I meant you, you know you're you're uh well I, I mentioned earlier that I'm not doing a very good job of managing my life right now. So I've <laughs> gone back and forth on this tool on these tool projects um and it's something that I have a lot of interest in interest in. I started out as a mechanical engineer specifically doing tool design and that didn't last very long. I went into farming pretty quickly after getting out of school. Um, but I, I, you know, do have that background and training and that background and training I got because I had that interest and that was uh, something I was very interested in. And so, um, one of the, the kind of the, the most developed project in, in that sense, um, is a project that, that's kind of loosely labeled farmhand carts and, and there's a website farmhandcarts.com which, um, outlines some of this, um, but, you know, through through the entire time that I've been um, farming, I've always been looking at what tools are being used and kind of how do I, how did I think that I could improve those tools and and you know how could I just use those tools better also um, and uh, there's there's a lot of creativity there that that's a lot of fun to play with. So um, one of the tools that I saw I used and it's just a fantastic workhorse all around the farm and I saw a lot of extra potential for, was the garden cart, um, and the Vermont carts, and the garden carts are just, they were on every farm I ever worked on, they they last a long time, we had carts that were ten, fifteen 15 years old, and they had been beaten up and repaired multiple times, but they were still going and hauling hundreds of pounds of produce back and forth from the fields, and I thought that's just fantastic, but ergonomically, they weren't as good as I wanted them, and they didn't fit into every space that I wanted them, and I thought that there were a lot of extra things that they could do, so I started developing some cart designs around that. Um, the The creative part is really, really interesting and really exciting to me, and I can um, kind of, you know, fit that into nooks and crannies and in space and time that I have uh, between the farming. Um, I... A couple of years ago I started exploring well, do I want to turn this into a business also and offer these to other people and started um, working with some fabricators that I met and um, putting together uh, CAD files that you know had the the prints for all the different parts and and uh, we did one production run of them, very, very small run of five carts and, and sold all of those. And I did a couple of other prototypes for people and sold a couple of more carts. But the business part um, to both myself and the fabricators was not the most interesting part. It was kind of creatively pushing that design edge. And, and that piece doesn't pay <laughs> unless you also do the business and the, and the marketing end of it. And so we're kind of just stalled right now in in that business and marketing phase that we have never really committed ourselves to. and um, So it's kind of gotten pushed to the back burner. You know, just to answer the question further further on managing time, the other thing is with all these uh, farm projects that I've been doing for the last five years, I have intentionally set them up as part-time projects. Um, so, I think I mentioned that uh, our table, we were working two days a week at Slowhand Farm. It initially started out as a one day a week project and then moved to two days a week. Um, and that kind of grew out of some experience I had setting up a farm for a restaurant here in town the year before I started Slowhand Farm. And I just didn't have enough time to work all week for them. And so, uh, and they didn't have enough work. And so I set it up as a three day a week thing and had Uh, three of us actually work on it instead of just one or one-and-a-half people working full-time. And what I saw coming out of that was that all the burnout that normally happens in August, September, when the work just gets super, super heavy, wasn't happening. And people were coming to work every day really excited about what they were doing and kind of bringing these experiences from other places because they were doing work outside, and part of what makes that work is that we all did have other projects and other interests and things that we were working on. And um, and I think um, I'm very close to an urban center. I actually live inside the city of Portland, and uh, there's a lot going on in town and a lot of other opportunities. So I think you know all those things kind of combine together to to, uh, to create really great opportunities for parkland for me.
2: Well I just as I'm hearing that and you know familiar as I am with a lot of the stories sorry sorry, truck just went off um, a lot of the stories of other people who are working on like a sideline business or a kind of winter fabrication business it yeah. really inspires me to just think, well, you know uh, there is this dynamism that does happen in a, in a group format and you know, maybe we need to think more in terms of creating a kind of a facility basis that's kind of a cooperative facility where people can all come in and do, you know, a uh, little bursts of production or, you know, work in a workshop format and, you know, bust out a bunch of things like these French farm hacker guys do where they have basically 16 guys in there fabricating tools for a week and they just basically all make the tools and get them done. Anyways, That, that there's, in the same way as you're describing this more fluid, more open, more attentive human resource deployment strategizing um, that you've yeah. managed to do in these other sectors, I feel like that kind of jump has to happen also to jumpstart a lot of this renaissance that I see in the small manufacturing sector. Uh, just because we're yeah, small, I feel like we're. Go
3: ahead. Well, I I, was gonna say, I think that's true. And, and um, you know, just to, to build on that a little bit, uh, you know, another piece that I see is really important and that kind of plays the same role in some ways is just creating networks, uh, kind of like the Farm Hack Network or, you know, with a lot of farm groups, there are listservs that I'm on um, and those listservs are always more effective. They're, they're a very effective tool, but they're also more effective when there are uh, regular meetings and kind of events. So people aren't necessarily working in the same space together all the time, but they have this social connection and they have this, connect, you know, they're able to bounce ideas back and forth. Um, and so that, you know, those kinds of things have been really useful also.
2: Networks and events, oh, my gosh, what an insight. We should do more of that. <laughs>
3: Um, yes, I you've been working you on that
2: a little, I, I um yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly. You should join the board of FarmHack. We could use the possible title <laughs> like you. Um, yes,
3: I, I, I need more projects to work on.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can hear that you don't. But, uh, you know, life is long. We won't give up on you. Um, okay, well, I feel like we've covered a lot. Um. Maybe I'll think to just point some people to If they are listening to you and feeling inspired by the mechanics and the kind of engineers approach to these various human and mechanical systems of appropriate agriculture, um, some places to find inspiration and learning uh, in their own path. What are some of the places that you're going or have gone um, to nurture your own growth and ambition around invention?
3: You know, mostly what it has been, both with the farming um, and with, uh, you know, the the related tools and kind of um, uh, innovations and that kind of thing, is uh, going around and taking every opportunity to visit other practitioners. So people who are farming, you know, anytime I have an opportunity to go and visit uh, somebody who's... Farming, especially if they're doing a farm project that I'm uh, that I've heard of or am particularly interested in, um, you know, taking the time to to figure out how to get out to their place and to um, you know interact with them a little bit and to to see what it is that they're actually doing. And the same goes for you know looking at the tools that they're using and kind of asking them about that and kind of just uh, you know poking around and and. Um, and thinking about how how is this whole thing working how is it all fitting together and why are they using the the things that they're using and why are they working for them and why could they work for me or why might might they not work in my particular situation and then on the you know on the tool design end and the manufacturing end it's the same thing it's going you know going to hardware stores and going to uh, and just poking through the aisles and seeing what kind of materials are available, and steel yards and the remnant piles, and um, and uh, you know meeting machinists and you know kind of looking at you know what tech they're using and um, and looking at you know I'm I'm I actually come from a bicycle background, so I was a bike mechanic and uh, all through high school and college and raced bicycles for a long time, and so a lot of the stuff that uh, I am looking at it is from the bicycle world. And, you know, how do we apply some of these bicycle technologies, um, which are fairly appropriately scaled for small-scale agriculture, and how do we bring those over into uh, the agriculture world? So, if, you know, if you look at my carts, you'll see that there's bicycle parts all over them. And even, even we even use the two fabricators who I work with are also bicycle guys, and so we use some parts that are specifically from uh bicycle frame building kits um and uh so you know i think there's a lot of a lot of interesting overlap in, in all kinds of different places and that's just the place that i tend to go to but um but going and visiting people I, you can search around on the internet for all this kind of stuff and get a little bit of infor- information and a little bit of inspiration that way but i think it's much much better to actually physically go out and and see this stuff and and poke around and talk to the people who are using it and and, uh, and, are, and are doing it.
2: Well, and so you're saying there's an overlap, and, and I I want to agree so much about the overlap, and I also have been watching just a really nice set of relationships building between uh, farmers who have a certain set of aptitudes and knowledge of the problem and the... You know, the angles and the uh, ergonomics and the materials and what's available. And then people who are coming from a different background who have maybe more on the fabrication um, or on the open hardware, open software side to bring to the equation. But for that to really be a, um, a relationship that is mutual, of mutual learning, seems to be one of the things that's very appropriate to the project we're taking on. And that, that 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 there's that we're like being partners more, and everyone's just driving a little bit less, and and sharing the wheel, as it were.
3: Yeah, uh, and it's it's not you know if those people don't, I guess what I want to say is patience is important in that process also. That um, you can't expect it all to come all at once. Um, so there may be you know small examples of. Sticking those two groups together, or two of those people together, and a problem that both of them have been working on or thinking about may overlap immediately. Um, but I think that l- happens less often. And what more often happens is that over time, as the two can get to understand, you know, what the possibilities are and what the other person is working on, and so if they can, you know, even do some overlapping work for. Uh, a period of time or, you know, if you're doing those farm visits, if you do one farm visit, that's great, you of see a bunch of little things, but if you do farm visits over a number of years, you know, you come back to the same place two or three or four times, it starts to become obvious that things that you thought were really important on that operation actually maybe aren't quite as important and other things are much more enduring. Um, so there's, a, there's an element of patience that has to be um, thought about in that whole process as well.
2: I'm in. I'm in it for the long haul. And it sounds like you are also, we can't, I can't wait to hear more about the Our Table as it evolves. If you guys are yeah. interested who are listening in knowing more about it, there is a profile up of it on Agrarian Trust under the strategies page. Um, and I'm probably, you guys, Our Table probably has a very powerful uh, web presence as well of their There's own. There's
3: a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of information on our website, which is ourtable.us. Um, so a little bit different extension there, but um, um, uh, all kinds of information about the co-op itself and kind of the, the larger plan for the, for the property.
2: So wonderful. Um, I just want to give a small update of what's coming up in Greenhorn's World. Um, there is a gathering hosted by Moses. It's called Young Farmers Congress. That's going to be in Wisconsin on the first weekend in April. If you're a Moses in the Moses geography land, um, I'm going to be there. National Young Farmers is going to be there. Uh, there's a wonderful crew all dedicated to new farmer issues for a weekend campout farm party educational hoopla. And then at the end of April, um, Greenhorn – well, actually, no, Agrarian Trust is hosting – a big symposium on land access, land transfer, land reform at Berkeley, in Berkeley, at UC Berkeley on Saturday, and next door the Brower Center on Sunday. That's made possible by a partnership with Chelsea Green, Roots of Change, Berkeley Food Institute, Brower Center, Schumacher Center for New Economics, and that will be available as a set of podcasts. So if you're uh, tracking the farmland access issue issue, which many of us are, I really hope you will make the clicking effort to to listen in to the program we put together. Josh, thank you.
3: Yeah, it was uh, fun doing it. We'll have to do it again.
2: Do it again soon. Yeah, well, over time, we'll be patient. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody.